0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: As writers, we're always told, though, create obstacles for your characters. Well, I didn't have to make up the obstacles. They're just all around her, and they're so much more interesting than something that I could just make
2: up. That's author Radha Vatsal talking about her new novel, A Front Page Affair. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Okay, let's get started. This is a great episode. I really love this one. For those of you new to the show, this is the History of Literature. We're on a journey from the Epic of Gilgamesh to contemporary literature. But along the way, we make some diversions from time to time to discuss topics of interest. Today is one of those excellent diversions. I'm joined by author Radha Vatsal. She's here to discuss women journalists in New York City and the murder mystery she's written with a plucky female heroine. We also discussed the research she's done on action movie heroines in the early days of Hollywood. Did you know there were 800 films starring female action stars from 1910 to 1920? I did not. There's a lot to learn from Rada, one of those authors who digs deep in the research. You'll hear our conversation in a minute, but first, a reminder that you can find us our show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you like to get podcasts. Please subscribe. Please tell all your friends. Please rate and review us wherever you can. Okay, here we go. My conversation with Radha
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
2: Okay, I'm joined now by a special guest author, Rada Vatsal, whose first book launches on May 3rd. A Front Page Affair is the name of the book. It's a historical mystery set in New York in 1915 with a plucky female journalist heroine at the center of the book. The book covers a lot of ground. The sinking of Lusitania, a wartime conspiracy, a shooting at J.P. Morgan's mansion, and it's all shown through the lens of a rising female journalist who drives her own car and is eager to write about something more than just fashion and society gossip. It's the first book in a series, and it's already getting rave reviews. Radha is here to discuss her new book and to share some other works that we should all have on our reading list. I'll be asking her about her background, including the fiction and nonfiction that helped inform her writing, and we'll see if we can trace some of the influences that led to Kitty Weeks and A Front Page Affair. Radha Vatzal, congratulations on your new novel, and welcome to the History of Literature podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
2: Okay, so... You know, sometimes a book kind of arrives out of the blue and it's hard to see connections between the author's other interests or their background. But in your case, it seems like there are a lot of of ways we can trace the things you've been interested in in your previous career as an academic and the book that you've written. Um, But before we get that to uh, Kitty Weeks, let's talk a little bit about your background. Now I understand that you grew up in India, is that right?
1: Yeah, I was born and raised in Bombay Um, I guess everybody calls it Mumbai now, but when I grew up, it was still Bombay. And um, I stayed there till I was 16 with my family.
2: Okay, and then when you were 16, something interesting happened to you.
1: Yeah, I had always kind of wanted to try something different and do something different. And um, uh, a recruiter from a boarding school in Connecticut happened to be at our school, and uh, I interviewed, and I got a spot. So I wound up going to boarding school in Connecticut at 16, straight from India. Wow.
2: And what did your family think of that?
1: Well, uh, m- most people were not too pleased with the idea. <laughs> they th- they thought I was too young. My brother was in, the s- in boarding school. I mean, he was in college in California.
2: Oh, right. So there was some precedent, at least.
1: Yeah, well, actually, my mother had gone. She went to Oxford, and my father had also gone to college in the U.S. and stuff. So there was always a precedent. There was a precedent for people studying abroad, just not um, at the high school level. Right, right. And so they didn't like the idea of my leaving so young. But funnily enough, my mom was okay with it. And she, I think, knew that I really... Uh, didn't want to stay on for those two years, in part because I was always interested in the humanities and the humanities education kind of drops off in India during those two years. So um, she let me go. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
2: And she maybe she was thinking back to when she was 16 and what it would have been like to have an opportunity like that handed to her.
1: I wonder, actually, I've never asked her why she let me go, because now, if I think about it, and if my daughter ha- you know if we were in the same position, I don't know if I'd let my daughter <laughs> go at sixteen, and back then, there was no email, there were no cell phones, right. I didn't have a credit card. you know, I just came with the money I had in my pocket. It was oh. a little bit insane.
2: right, <laughs> all the way to Connecticut all the um, way to Connecticut. And then so looking back, do you think that that experience how do you think that experience affected you?
1: I think it like yeah, it was a huge kind of life changer because it was a very young time I, you know it was it right you know I came at at a young age, I also came to this school where um it's the task school in Connecticut, and it's a great school, but there really weren't very many other international students there. So, um, right. so it was really kind of a a bit of a culture shock for me. Um, although, you know, my family, as I said, they've all studied abroad, and we've traveled abroad, and I have, um, you know, members of my family who are not Indian, who are from different countries. So it's I had a pretty cosmopolitan upbringing, but still being in that New England environment um, was a real surprise for me.
2: So you you landed in this culture, and my guess is you were probably seeing yourself as something of an outsider or feeling that from the other kids who were there, and it kind of makes me think of a front-page affair, and it seems like the heroine in that book is in a similar position.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what was really interesting for me coming from India was that um, I had a pretty nice upbringing in India, um, and I was always on the inside, if you will, of social groups and things. And then I came here to school in Connecticut, and I realized, wow, it's exactly the same as what I left behind, except for this time I'm outside. Right. Right. not on the inside and to like experience that so viscerally when you're 16 to realize like wow that's just all it is like some people are on the outside some people are on the inside and it just depends where you know on on circumstances like that was a real eye-opener for me but I do feel like it gave me an interesting perspective on things and i and and Kitty Weeks, the protagonist in A Front Page Affair, is a little bit older, um, and she's been away in boarding school in Switzerland. She's also white, but she comes to New York um, when she's 19 to rejoin her father, and she has that same kind of outsider's perspective. But at the same time, she's very comfortable with where she's, with the world that she's in, but she's still an outsider. And I think that's kind of what happened to me. Like I quickly became very comfortable with it, but I always kind of retained this outsider's
2: perspective. That's so interesting that it's, it's not a situation where you yourself grew up as an outsider, you know, something that you felt from the age of three or something. And, and one might wonder if that's the situation, if, if the person, The person might wonder if they would ever fit in somewhere or if there's something wrong with them. And instead you were, even though you're only 16, you were already kind of fully formed with your persona and, and you had a sense of who you were from your life in India. And so you really came as a person, just well positioned to observe almost like an anthropologist who's descending on Connecticut boarding school to, to watch the groups and the interactions and the personalities and all the people that you're seeing there.
1: That makes me sound, I think, more together than I was. I certainly, <laughs> I certainly wasn't. I'm sure, like, if people remember me, they'll thought that I was, like, really quiet and, you know, didn't know what I was doing. But it was really interesting in the sense that I I, re- I really kind of learned... I mean, I just learned, like, how shallow it was in a certain sense to be an insider. It's all about knowing what to say to certain things and what, where you live and who you know. You know, all these little, little things, all these little markers right. um, that you kind of develop over time. And, and I had them there, and I didn't have them when I went to boarding school. But I also felt like, oh, you know what? If I stayed in this boarding school for a year, I could learn them all, and then go to another boarding school, and you know,
3: right? And Maths have everything one. all yeah. set. And you
1: just <laughs> realize how much of it is like these kind of learned,
2: right? And then, uh, were you writing at this time? Were you already writing fiction, or is that something that started later?
1: I, I, I didn't write so much like long form fiction. I was, I was doing a little bit of children's books, and I also was really interested in film right. um, at that time, and I made some short videos. And in fact, I had wanted to go um, continue on. I wanted to go to film school afterwards, but my mom said, you know, you have to go to college to learn something, and then you can make films later. So right. so, so, uh, uh, so I didn't pursue film production. Though it, in retrospect, I think it's better that's something better to do when you're younger, and uh, and the fear of failure right. is not uh, so. <laughs> you know, I think as you get older, those types of things are harder to do.
2: I think that I think that's true, and I wanted to get to that because you actually wound up getting a PhD in English, but with a focus on film. Is that the right way to to put yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And your focus was on women filmmakers and action film heroines of the silent film era. And we're right back in the in the decade that you returned to when you wrote uh, A Front Page Affair in the 1910 to 1920. And there's an article, you sent me a link to an article, and I'm going to post it on my website, uh, jackwilson.com. And it, it's uh, written, you wrote it for The Atlantic, and it's really fascinating it's something i knew nothing about that there were this many uh women filmmakers and stars of these serial adventure stories female stars uh in the period from 1910 to 1920 i think i i said in an email to you that most people or if i'm like most people they think of charlie chaplin and maybe dw griffith and maybe a few other uh you know snippets of films we've seen from that era but the idea that there were almost, I think, eight hundred episodes of of yeah. these these women is just incredible. How did you come across this, or what led you to this topic?
1: Well, um, I was I was just I was doing English literature, um, but film was a cross listed department, um, and it was part of the English department as well. And uh, uh, a professor there, Jane Gaines, she's amazing, and she's uh, at Columbia now. But she had been doing um, work on silent era filmmakers, and I started just reading about it through her, and I was just blown away. I I couldn't, just like you, I started with the filmmakers, and I couldn't believe it. And when I started, um, that was sort of, I think, the earlier part of when when or silent era filmmakers were being to, were starting to be studied, so there was always new information being discovered, and there and there still is. But yeah, I was just kind of amazed by it, and the fact that we don't don't know much about it. Like I was, I couldn't believe that people just didn't know that these filmmakers had been forgotten. And then as I began delving more and more into the period and learning about the action heroines, and also just the transformation of cinema that occurred during that period. That's what really opened my eyes to the teens, though it would be a while before I realized, oh, I wanted to to, to write fiction in that era. But there's just seemed to be so many different and exciting things going on. And if you take film as being sort of like one of the defining kind of... cultural inventions of the 20th century, then what was happening during the early 1900s and 1910s was film was kind of deciding what it wanted to be. And there's so many, in so many senses, there's like a parallel to the internet, you know, like there was no... Easy answer, like nobody knew what was the film format that was going to win out. Would it be shorts? Would it be these newer, crazier, longer films that were feature length, or they weren't even called feature length; they were just longer. And people thought, oh, you know, nobody's going to sit through these things. They're not so interesting. Um, They're going to—it's a passing fad. Or, you know, um, even the format of a film—are they going to be 16 millimeter, 35 millimeter? Uh, You know, what is film going to look like? People are from Chaplin started his career in the teens, but people are familiar, I think, maybe with some of his short films, but then mainly with his feature films. Right. Which, like, in the 20s already, even though films are still silent in the 20s, uh, for most of the 20s, films have taken on this feature, big budget, lavish style that we associate with Hollywood. Right. But in the, in the, First decade of the 20th century there was no Hollywood people were just starting to go out there I can't remember the exact dates 1909 1910 and then New York was really the center of production there were a lot of production companies in New Jersey and then it's like by 1915 you know I don't remember the dates exactly but the mid teens is when Hollywood starts becoming ascendant and then by world by the end of World War 1 that's when Hollywood is now firmly established.
2: Well, and also just that they're the female action stars. I mean, we're arguing today about whether Ghostbusters should have four women and and whether, you know, what that means. And we act like this is, um, you know, it, it feels kind of retrograde that we're even having that discussion. And here I'm going to read the first paragraph of your article in The Atlantic. It says, "A city editor orders an armed female reporter to chase down a con man and get the story. A railroad telegrapher seeks vigilante-style justice against two robbers who attacked her. An adventure-seeking heiress outruns a giant boulder Indiana Jones-style, decades before Harrison Ford was ever born. I mean, this is, what happened? What, what happened in 1920 that these that these started to, to disappear from view? Um, you know, what happened to the women?
1: Yeah, there's no clear answer for it, you know, and I tried to like address that in my article, but but babe, one one thing that happened was that um that as I said, so these these serial films that they acted in were short films, but Released in a serial manner over, like, every week or biweekly or something like that, right. and so they're happening at the same time as you have some people releasing features and other people releasing just standalone short films. And by the end of World War One, um, features become the kind of dominant gen- film genre, right. and so these other genres like serials and short films become sort of b-grade genres they're lesser entertainment and and they basically fall out of favor now why these action heroines didn't make the transition to doing action feature films i don't know but there is something about you know what it's it's, it's hard to put one finger on it, and there was also simultaneously, as you mentioned, there were many women making films, and they had production companies, and um, they were doing all kinds of things behind the camera. And these women weren't necessarily the same people who were directing the action film heroines. In fact, those films were directed primarily by men. But what happened once once the film, film industry took off and became became this big international business as it did after the end of World War 1 is that there's lots more money involved and features cost a lot more money to make and right. then all of a sudden you're having these what was like run more informally like a cottage industry like small businesses everyone doing their own thing kind of right. like if you think of it as like a whole bunch of startups instead you have these big studios taking over and all these fields professionalize the camera you know directors become you know each of these things become a profession directing producing operating the film camera all these kind of things and so the barriers for entry to women just get higher and you only see women then as script writers and as film editors and, you know, certain costume designers, certain sort of behind-the-scene roles, and they get pushed out of uh, out of directing and producing and things. But why the action heroines kind of couldn't make that transition to features?
2: You wonder if it, it was... It's
1: a real mystery.
2: Yeah, you wonder if it was um, they started, you know, doing audience testing and and finding that, uh audiences preferred men in the leads, or if it was just their idea, you know, that'd be sort of my guess is just as the men kind of moved in and the money was there to be made and, and the barriers to entry became higher that you wound up with just all of these men who just assumed that, that male stars would be, uh, would play better in, uh, Poughkeepsie.
1: Yeah. You, yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to know. I mean, I wonder, um, you know i i i i I bet it's some sort of combination of all of those things but but yeah, I feel like as maybe the industry as there was more money at stake became more risk averse although you know given their popularity it wasn't so risky to bet on these women stars and women had got the vote by nineteen nineteen you know I don't know I don't know whether that kind of I mean, it all seems very odd, but, but one thing that certainly did happen is that you know women were pouring in to, the, to many different fields right. in the early 1900s and 1910s, and then in many different fields they took steps back, massive steps back, and we kind of forget that. And then, again, like by the 1970s, their numbers rise. And that's certainly what happened in terms of women filmmakers. There were many more in the teens than there were for the next 50 years basically
2: right well you know you mentioned earlier the internet as something that's been transformative and we still don't know exactly where it's going to wind up and my first thought was was one of fear thinking when you mentioned that i was thinking oh man what if what if it gets to a point where it gets taken over by, you know, the bigger companies and the barriers to entry get higher and, and things get dominated by maybe a handful of sites instead of all of the wide distribution we've we've seen. But actually, as we were discussing this, I started thinking that a, a better, uh, a closer parallel might be what we're seeing now with television production and film production and people making videos for... YouTube or uh, that the distribution platforms are getting wider and it seems like the barriers to entry are getting a lot lower and we may see, and I think we're already starting to see more uh, women having access or even just different types of films and older characters or people who don't fit the, the profile of the uh, white male Hero with maybe a love interest and maybe a sidekick, um, <laughs> and instead we're seeing something. You know, it, it can be all over the place. The they're not trying to to score a, a hundred and fifty million dollar opening release, but find a, a a smaller niche and a smaller market, and we're we're all kind of benefiting from that.
1: Yeah, I would completely agree with that. I mean, and even you know, just the fact that you're able to do this show, I mean, I think is a great. Example right.
2: of that. <laughs> Right, the smallest of niches. Sure. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, let's move from, uh, the world of film into the world of female journalism. But before we do, the first book you chose to take a look at is the waterworks by E.L. Doctorow. And I have to say, if there's one writer who seems to belong on this list, it's Doctorow. I know he, he was maybe writing about a slightly different time period, I think. Um, But a little uh, earlier, a little earlier, but he is definitely sort of New York uh, historical fiction, really a a legend in the field. So, tell us about the waterworks.
1: I mean, I've read the waterworks and I just loved it. There, it's so atmospheric and it's so crisp and short and concise. Um, and actually, uh the protagonist in that works for a newspaper. Oh, I right. To, I, it, it was a long time ago. Um, but But I love, I mean, Doctor just does it so well, but I love books that are immersive and make another moment in time or another place feel fully real and fully fleshed out. And when I read Waterworks, I just felt like, wow, this is, you know what I would aspire to obviously my work is not in that category but it was really inspiring to me
2: right he's he's just great at getting all those details in and that it, you're right the atmosphere is really what I associate with him just that you you get so quickly immersed in his world and then He's got such a confidence and such uh, self-assurance, and just such a high level of competence as to the dialogue and the details, and um, it really feels like you're, you're you really get to time travel with him.
1: Yeah, and he's just a great storyteller too. You know, he has right. a great storyteller's voice. I feel, which I really um, enjoy.
2: He also works in bigger. I don't mean to suggest that he's just uh, stuffing everything with detail. He's he works with broad themes as well. And there's always, you know, I think is the waterworks about Boss Tweed.
1: Boss Tweed is in the waterworks, yeah. And it it has like a more fantastical. um, It sort of veers off into the fantastical. I I don't want to give anything away but it has to do with the reservoir um that used to be on the place of the where the main library branch is now oh, right. Of, of the new york public library there used to be a reservoir for water coming into new york
2: and you you've spent some time at the new york public library i did yeah. <laughs> in the
1: early early years of my research but since then it's so funny like now so much has been digitized. Right. Um, when I started researching this book, I kept on having to go back to the New York Public Library, but now with all the books that are, um, all the primary sources, and because all the sources that I use are out of copyright, so many of them have been digitized, it's kind of great.
2: Okay, so let's, uh, let's take a look at the next book another uh, great uh-huh. researcher, Philip Blom. I hope I'm pronouncing yeah. that correctly. He's a German historian and journalist, and he's written a few novels, and it sounds like all of his books, I haven't read any of them, but it sounds like all of them are are uh, sort of marked by his storytelling and his uh, and are, are very readable. Um, and the book you've chosen is called The Vertigo Years, and it's a, a work of history. What made you choose The Vertigo Years?
1: I mean, it's just, Theory. So, it, for each year from 1900 to 1914, it sort of um, takes up a different theme of what was going on in Europe during this time. And mm-hmm. we have a, such a rosy picture, like the bell, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but it's like, you know, in movies, and the skies were all blue until World War One, War you know, right. suddenly broke out. Yep. But there was... All this stuff happening, um, and you know there were colonies, and there were women's rights, and there was a um, rapid modernization, and all these world fairs, and and fears about declining birth rates, and electricity, and movies, and cars, and I think.
2: Sigmund Freud.
1: Yeah, Freud, and you know all you know all kinds of all kinds of people and and events that I feel like. First of all, the—I mean—he calls it the vertigo years because he feels like the world was actually moving really fast. And then, in a sense, a lot of the things, the momentum that was picked up then, kind of comes to a head during the World War One era. But right. I think, I think especially here in the U.S., you know we don't think of world war 1 as our war but it was really a transformative i think moment in american history where like the us really becomes modern before that it was you know that country across the across the atlantic that kind of played it was a second-tier nation that sort of played, you know, an interesting part, but it wasn't like center stage in world politics. It certainly became center stage after World War One, and never ever looked back. Um, and when you, I mean, this book is set in, in Europe, but when you read about, um, also Blom has just encyclopedic knowledge, so it's very easy, entertaining reading and just page after page of 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 little things that one would never know but you're like amazed to learn about it so it's it's actually very easy reading and a lot of fun and so much of it is is still kind of relevant today that's what i think is so interesting like i still think we're working out the consequences of a lot that went on back then
2: if You you take a look at uh, the the episodes that you cover in a front page affair, like the sinking of the Lusitania and the decision to whether America was going to enter World War One, if that was kind of a turning point for America, um, where it had to ask itself, are we going to be players on a bigger stage here? Or are we going to retreat into isolationism and be sort of a provincial country?
1: I think that's that's right like but I don't think that that decision got made right I think that decision was being made even while the US hadn't even while the new US was neutral it was sort of inching right. towards that decision and 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 Germany kept kind of German behaved I mean I go into this in the book with the sinking of the Lusitania and other things that Come out during the course of this book, which seemed kind of unbelievable. But Germany also kind of felt very much that, like, it had its back against the wall, and it didn't want the U.S. to join, but it kind of kept on doing things that sort of aggravated the situation and sort of made that slow slide, that slow creep into the U.S. joining the war inevitable. But actually, I'm working on book two now, um, and book. in this series is set sort of December 1915 to late January 1916. And during this period, um, President Wilson starts touring across the U.S. and he he makes a a famous speech first in New York City um, where he says, you know, America can no longer afford to be a provincial nation. And I think that that's such an important statement because after the, you know, after that point on it, it really wasn't anymore.
2: Right. I mean, the the idea of these being vertigo years and the pace of change, and I'm wondering, you know, there were probably a lot of people who were, who became more resistant to change just because there were so many things changing on so many different fronts and is that something that they were that that I don't know if Blum has gone into this or if you noticed it in your research what were the men doing um, as the women were uh, getting more and more rights and more freedoms and more were entering the workplace more and did you see a a strong backlash or were they um, yeah re- yeah
1: yeah so there there definitely was a, a a backlash so in you know in fact like it, Women's enrollment in universities rose, and then there were all kinds of um, there were all kinds of efforts. To, I mean, this was even before, like early 1900s, and then there were all kinds of, you know, women started enrolling in universities in really high numbers, and they started outperforming the men in many cases, and then then there started to be all these things of like having classes that were segregated by sex or like streaming men into one field and women into another and pushing women into the natural sciences and the humanities and all these kind of things. So there were all these subtle things to push um to push women back. And definitely there's a whole after the war again like there's this whole kind of cultural conservatism I think that came into play. I was reading the biography of um, um Virginia Gildersleeve who was the dean of Barnard mm. and I think she was the dean from maybe like 1911 to to World War 2 like for a very long time. Again, I'm not great with the dates off the cuff. But for, for a really long period, and what she says in her autobiography was that when she started teaching most of her students at Barnard had female professors by the time you know it got to the 30s she would ask her she would ask students, "Do you have women professors?" and they would reply, "No we haven't had any and actually we wouldn't want one hmm. so there's that kind of change happening. And you know in terms of the war, I don't think that the people, the countries who entered the war when they did certainly like right at the beginning they all thought it would be over, you know the war broke out August 1st everyone thought it was going to be done by December, it was going to be done by Christmas. You know, I don't it didn't seem that many of the players who who were instrumental in having the war Begin really realize what kind of change it was going to unleash.
2: Right. Okay, let's get back to female journalists. And the question I had when you were talking earlier is, your heroine Kitty Weeks is trapped on the society and gossip pages. Is that kind of what happened when uh, women were journalists that eventually, or maybe right from the beginning, they got steered into what would be more stereotypically female roles rather than covering politics yeah. or or courtroom yeah. dramas or something that they were given, you know, gossip pages and probably baking tips or things like that.
1: Exactly. So they, m- many papers had like Kitty works on the ladies page of her newspaper, which is a fictional newspaper, the New York Sentinel, but many pa many, um, Many newspapers had this ladies' page, or they called it the women's department or the women's page, and that's where female journalists were sort of placed. And uh, they, if they covered, you know, they were not allowed to, cover, to work in the newsroom um, and just cover day-to-day events. And if they were sent out to cover a news event, they were supposed to, to present the woman's angle right. on a case. So, which basically sort of meant this sort of sentimental...
2: Right. Go to cover a murder trial and tell us about what everyone's wearing and...
1: Or the feelings, you know, the the, feelings
2: That the mother was there crying, that her son was headed toward the... Exact. Yeah.
1: And then the woman journalist would also be featured. So, the fact that she's telling the story would become part of the story, you know, and... uh, as opposed to the male journalists who were, uh, who were assumed to be objective, so it doesn't matter who's telling the story, but the way it would be like, so from the point of view of Miss So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so, you know, if they were doing a story, um, it, all had, it all had a very personal touch because women weren't supposed to be able to be objective.
2: Right. And I sh- I should mention that a lot of uh, what you learned about this era and about women journalists during this era comes from the next two books on your list. Uh, the first one was Front Page Girls, Women Journalists in American Culture and Fiction, 1880 to 1930 by Jean Marie Lutz. And the second one was called Out on Assignment, Newspaper Women and the Making of Modern Public Space by Alice Foz. Uh Is there a way to... to to boil down what you took from each of these books?
1: Well actually I, I had the idea and um, for what Kitty would be doing for a, a long time and then I found the books afterwards. Oh so right,
2: right. I wondered about that. So, So this was part of your research into Kitty Weeks was finding these two academic works that had covered this this topic that would give you some background information for what you needed for your character.
1: Well, more, more actually. I kind of because with Kitty, I had, um, lo- you know, I had looked at. Um various career guides for women. So I had known how they were describing journalism, period career guides and stuff. So I, I had a sense of how they were describing journalism, you know, a profession for women. And right. even in those period career guides, they would say like, you know, it's best to be in a women's magazine and women can't be sent out at all hours and can't stand right. the stress of deadlines. Right. So I kind of knew all that. And then I just said, oh, I kind of need a book to confirm some of my suspicions. Right, and flesh it out a little bit more, and these two books really helped me do that and helped me put in a, get in a little bit more context about the newspaper business. But I had basically um, sort of worked out a lot of what I of what I needed, and I just wanted some confirmation for my guesses and. Um, But they were really interesting in that they kind of talked about different kinds of women journalists, the Sob Sisters, who were the women journalists who covered the Harry Thaw trial.
3: The witch Um, trial?
1: uh, Harry Thaw. I don't know um, if you've... Actually, Doctoro. I think, talks about Evelyn Nesbitt, his wife. Um, He's a millionaire, and uh, I don't know if... Do you want me to get into it? Sure. Um, So... Uh, I think again, I'm bad with the dates, but like 1905 or something. He's like this crazed millionaire marries this beautiful young woman, Evelyn Nesbit, and then um, uh, dis- discovers that she probably had an affair with Sanford White, who's the White and McKim, Mead and White, um, huh. the famous architects who did a lot of Manhattan's famous architecture, right. uh, including the Madison Square Garden and uh, And then he shoots White and kills him. No, on the rooftop of Madison Square Garden in front of everyone. Wow! And the yeah, yeah, he's kind, of, he's kind of deranged. And then the trial caused was this huge sensation because Thaw was kind of crazy, and it was the story about Evelyn Nesbit coming penniless girl to New York, and then you know taken advantage of by White. And so there's all right. kinds of sordid information. Women were not allowed to serve on the jury at the time. Oh, and yeah. And so the judge dismissed, the judge dismissed all women from the courtroom saying that the evidence is like unfit for women's ears. Oh, wow. So this poor Evelyn has to like testify to all this kind of sexual stuff in front of all these men, except for four women journalists from the four yellow newspaper. Ah,
2: um, And they were the South sisters.
1: They were, yeah, then the press dubbed them Sob Sisters. Right. um, And they were from the more sensational newspapers, and they covered the story on a day-to-day basis, you know, in very dramatic terms. And they were kind of um, really given, they were made fun of and and, and so on and so forth, that they were the only other women allowed in the courtroom. But um, there are also some, you know, famous other journalists from the period one is ida tarbell who wrote this she was a muckraker like writing exposés i mean she's really unique she didn't write she um, i think that was first published in mccall's so it was not for a newspaper she was not a reporter at a newspaper but she did this famous expose about rockefeller uh-huh. um, standard oil company which is considered even today as one of the you know top 100 pieces of journalism. Right. You know, they span the gamut, but in terms of newspaper reporting, very few women, if at all, in the newsroom, just doing day-to-day news reporting.
2: Right. So when you were putting together the character of Kitty, were you using, uh, did you take bits and pieces from these famous women journalists and give aspects of them or, or some of their experiences to Kitty's background, or were they... Uh, figures that kitty would have known and admired or would she have them as as colleagues or as predecessors to model herself after
1: so she, like, right in the beginning of the book, actually, when she's, she goes to a party and she witnesses a murder, or she doesn't witness, but she's there and a murder takes place, and she's working for the ladies page, and then she's asked to help out by someone in the newsroom because she was there. But he tells her very specifically he does not want her writing like the Sob Sisters. Oh. He's supposed to provide the women's angle, but, you know, you, that tells her that, so, that they're a serious newspaper.
3: Right.
2: And they don't
1: want any of that type of journalism.
2: Oh wow.
1: Yeah, Ida Tarbell becomes someone she could look up to. But also there's another very famous journalist of nineteenth century called Nellie Bly. Yes. And she also did um what was called stunt reporting or more sensational reporting. She would go undercover, like to an insane asylum and write an expose. And uh then for Pulitzer. She did this big trip around the world. She went off around the world and uh, beat, you know, um, Jules Verne's, it, it's not his real record, but he did around the world in 80 days, and she managed the trip in less than that. But she would send up back dispatches from all her ports of call, and these were hugely popular in the newspaper and really drove up circulation. Right. Um, but that's before Kitty's time, even. And so so women then got relegated into this sort of stunt reporting or sob sister. Um, as far as the newspaper world was concerned, they weren't really allowed to be serious
2: journalists. Right. And- there, was, there was probably a whole generation of people who, of women, who were, wanted to be the next Nellie Bly. And they then they got their job and they were handed their assignment and... And the dream was, was squelched.
1: Exactly. And actually, in, in the novel, Kid, Kitty's boss on the ladies' page is exactly like that. She sort of got into the business thinking, you know, the world was open to her. And then she realizes, no, but that what she can do is very limited.
2: Right. And Kitty, uh, I love the detail that Kitty drives her own car which uh, yeah. I, I thought was great because it's it's kind of a reminder um, of the fast pace of change and um, reminded me of my grandmother telling me about uh, the first date she went on with my grandfather and they went to a, a high school gymnasium and they watched uh, Duke Ellington play and, and my grandmother always used to end the story and say, and that was the night I had my first cigarette. and and it's such a uh, you know such a sense of freedom and um, you know the car was very important to them as well and it must have been uh, I mean you must have uh, had to go through a lot of trouble to make sure you were getting the details right on some of these things when you're you're creating Kitty's world and things she would have had access to or not had access to what was the research process like
1: it's Really painstaking, but luckily, I like it a lot and and I find that when I try to be really accurate about something, I learn something very interesting that I can use or or not in the story but um you know, I had this moment which actually doesn't appear in the book, but I had done the research for it where um, where like someone identifies a license plate and then I was like, "Oh my gosh, did they have a license plate right. back that I have no idea." And then I was trying to figure it out. So I'm like looking back and I see license plate images online with 1914, 1915, but I still wanted to kind of know more about how that worked. So actually this is a case where I went to the to the library and I got um a book like the New York State you know rules of the road like whatever the new york state automobile manual laws and everything and and that's when it said that like maybe i think in 1913 was when it became mandatory 1912 1913 to have a license plate and it's like secured fastened securely on the front and the back with the number clearly visible and and then and then i thought you know well how would you find out and it t- well also reading that book which is which was really great like where i realized you, you didn't have to have a license in 1915 to drive a car only if you were a chauffeur did you need, um but if you owned your own car you didn't need to have have a license to drive it and then if and then they had something called an automobile directory which was simply um a list of license plate numbers listed in chronological order with the name of the owner of the car beside it and the make of the car and their address so you know if you saw a car with whatever license plate number you could just look up that number and find out who it belonged to right like a phone you know so it's like that was sort of fascinating and And then that kind of detail allows you to do something interesting in your story.
2: Right, especially because this is a murder mystery and that kind of information for you would be telling you, well, this might be a way that Kitty goes out and gets information.
1: Exactly. I need to know how she would go and find things out. So that's kind of the the type of research that I did. And I, I like reading a lot of these things. I like reading manuals and guides and how to use a phone and how to make a phone call and how much do things cost. And
2: I'm still thinking about the career guide that you mentioned. It just seems like that must have been a kind of a hilarious um, and uh, bizarre almost book to read.
1: Yeah, um, I actually have it here if you can hold on, but I can tell you some of the um, um, can we can we just pause for a minute? Sure. Oh, it's right here, actually. Yeah, it's it's the most fun thing to read, <laughs> and you know some of the professions it gives for women is like um, labor. It, it gives like factory, laundry, dressmaking, domestic service, beekeeping. You know, telephone and telegraph work, and when you then read about like. I'll just take a random example uh sorry, if we can of the of what it says um. sorry we can cut this big pause
2: out right sure you know i'm actually really enjoying this i'm enjoying the idea of the uh of the novelist surrounded by her research and all these things at her fingertips and and uh tracking down the smallest details to make sure that the uh you know all of it it probably ends up going into one sentence or maybe one little plot twist or something but it's all important and it's it's a uh, really rich, makes the makes the end product very rich.
1: Yeah, I feel like, I mean, I just feel like I can't make this up, and it's so <laughs> funny, and it gives such a good sense of the time. So can I just read you a couple of lines?
2: Sure, sure.
1: So this is about if you want it to be do telephone or telegraph work. The girl at the telephone switchboard listens to requests for numbers, makes and breaks connections, and keeps account of the calls for each party. She must have absolutely reliable nerves, physical <laughs> endurance, sound hearing, and clear enunciation. During her period of training, she must cultivate a pleasant voice and polite address. <laughs> so, like, who knew you had to have strong nerves to do this? And then, All right?
2: But you know, things—lights are flashing, or buzzes are going off, and you—you you might just break down.
1: That's right. I mean, it's—it's—it's <laughs> really—it's really great stuff. And, and you know, about journalism. In in the in journalism, it says in newspaper work, women do not hold the highest positions: the editors, the reporters, and the men who rewrite stories must be able to work under pressure in a way that is beyond the power of most women the acknowledged field of women in the newspaper world is the reporting of society news and the editing of the women's page some whip, some newspapers also have children's pages that are successfully edited by women girls find it difficult to make their way in the newspaper office because the work in the lower positions is very exacting they may begin as general assistants proofreaders or stenographers and
2: and so on. I'm getting excited just thinking about you creating this character of Kitty Weeks and every one of these things that you're encountering, either you're thinking, well, this is what Kitty would have done, or this is the attitude that Kitty would have faced as she was trying to do the things that she wanted to do. And it it almost makes me wonder, I had this question for you, that it almost seems like as you're going through all of this research that Kitty would be emerging for you, as, you know, as much as something that you're creating but that you would be seeing things about her that are coming out of the research and your your understanding of the historical period. Is that what it felt like when you were, when you were putting this character together?
1: Yes, because I didn't want to make her an anachronistic character in that period. I didn't want to make her just, a, you know, like sometimes I read books where where they're set in a p- past moment, but the central characters feel like they have very little of the constraints of that moment. Right. And and I I definitely felt that I wanted Kitty to have both the constraints, and I didn't want her to just dismiss them out of hand, you know, but she may also feel a little bit of this. This is the world in, in which she lives. Yes, she definitely pushes back against a lot of stuff, but... But it's, you know, if everybody's telling you, like, it's hard, you can't go out, you can't do this, you need to be really strong, like, those are things that kind of filter in and, and they're part of the world that you have to negotiate. And, you know, as writers were always told, though, create obstacles for your characters. Well, I didn't have to make up the obstacles. They're just like all around her. And they're so much more interesting than... Again, something that I could just make up, you know.
2: Right. And now, uh, now you're going to head Kitty off into another, uh, another book and you, it's going to be a series. Do you, do you imagine that you'll, uh, be able to keep, uh, keep going with the series?
1: Yeah. I, I conceived it right from the start as a series. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, yeah, so the second book, you know, hopefully will be out next year. But um, but it was definitely conceived as a series. I wanted to kind of have each book deal with a slightly different angle on what was going on at the time. And my hope is that, you know, if I get to finish the series, once you're done reading it, you kind of grow with Kitty. But you also see, like, how many things change over that time. You get a really nice picture of of all the changes that were happening. And I'm hoping also that you kind of meet the characters again. Like I feel now when I read the papers, because I look at the papers from the period also, like I recognize the names and stuff, and that's what makes it so much fun, you know? Like right. someone may be a minor, but they come up again here and they're doing something interesting there, like all the kind of gossip and all the background stuff. Right. Um, I think it would be fun. It would, I think I would enjoy that as a reader and it's certainly fun for me as a writer So,
2: Well, I am looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to this book and to all the books in the series and Radha Vatzal, thank you for joining us on the History of Literature
1: Thank you very much
2: There we go That's going to do it See, I told you Wasn't that great? <laughs> Oh, I enjoyed that conversation. Everybody should go out and buy your book. It's going to be available on May 3rd. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably already available. Actually, you can pre-order it at Amazon.com, starting right now. My thanks to Radha for joining us for that conversation. And, of course, to all of you for joining us for all of the conversations here on the History of Literature Thank you all for listening. I'm Jack Wilson. We'll see you next time.